0: It'll hurt seeing him like that. I know. As much as it might seem at times that I can't stand that pointy-eared encyclopedia, I don't want to see that happen to it.
1: Bridge to all decks. Time for a brand new episode of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Vance.
2: And I'm Steve and I'm ready to deal with some pirates.
1: Pirates. You know, I was wondering how you were going to lean into your pun of the week. And, you know, sometimes you just got to go big
2: or go home, Steve. Well done.
1: Well done, what, my friend.
2: What was the, I don't think this was particularly well done. I think that was one of my, my, my weaker ones, actually. <laughs> I literally, in the moment before I went, oh, I haven't thought about anything to say. I just, okay, I guess that's what I'm saying. That works for us,
1: and that works for everyone listening, and for our deep dive of the very first episode of season two of the animated series of Star Trek, we are very excited to be joined by our very, very special guest. He is a New York Times best selling author. He is the writer of many Star Trek novels, including Covenant of the Crown, Deep Domain, The Better Man, and Perchance to Dream, among others. He is the author Of the must-have book, If You Love Dogs and Puppies, Puppy Kisses Are Good for the Soul, which is a must-have, a delightful read, and certainly a must-have if you are a new puppy owner like I am. Uh, He is uh, the author of the brand-new book, Galloway's Gamble 2, Lucifer and the Great Baltimore Brawl, which is coming in early July. It is the sequel to his first historical novel, Galloway's Gamble, which won the Western Fictioneers Peacemaker Award. And he is the writer of today's episode. He made his debut as a writer, his very first produced teleplay at the tender age of 19 years old. And that is our cue to welcome our guest, Howard Weinstein aboard Enterprise Incidents. Welcome
3: aboard, Howard. Thank you. And I didn't even have to beam through space to get there.
1: It is it is so great to have you. And I actually met you many, many, many years ago in Philadelphia. I think it was around 1982 or 1983, which is where I was born. And you were you were doing a convention at the Philadelphia Center Hotel for Creation uh, Entertainment, and it was a you know a science fiction, fantasy, and horror convention. It wasn't strictly Star Trek, but I have the vivid memory of you reading excerpts for from a uh, a novel that you were writing at the time and correct me if i'm wrong howard but wasn't that supposed to be the return of harry Mud?
3: ah <laughs> yeah i mean it was purely speculative at that point i really wanted to write a harry Mud story and i don't honestly remember what happened with it um <laughs> i don't know why I never finished it or why I never – I don't even know that I ever submitted it to, to Pocketbooks. But I eventually did write a Harry Mudd story for the DC Comics um, run that I did in the early 90s.
1: Well, I am very excited to hear more about your new book, Galloway's Gamble 2, Lucifer and the Great Baltimore Brawl. uh, uh First of all, tell us about the, the sequel and, and just you know veering from, from science fiction into historical fiction.
3: Well, one of the things that I loved about Star Trek and science fiction in general was the way it allowed you to comment on current events through the lens of futuristic perspective. The historical perspective today, and it's hard to have a historical perspective when you're only in the 23rd year of a hundred year century, mm. but- I think most of our listeners would probably agree that the first 23 years of this century have been pretty sucky. Yeah. And I realized I'm not optimistic about the future anymore. And so I kind of went for a few years, really. I had no idea what I wanted to write. Mm
0: -hmm.
3: And I accidentally stumbled across a cable channel called the Encore Western Channel which is on some cable systems. It's part of the larger Encore universe, if that still exists, of of cable channels. And I ended up watching some reruns of shows that I vaguely remembered and remembered having enjoyed from when I was a kid in the late 50s and early 60s, specifically Maverick, starring James Garner and Jack Kelly, and Have Gun Will Travel, starring Richard Boone. And I really enjoyed them, but I started to think, well, what would it be like to write those shows from the standpoint of modern writing style, where we focus much more on character development than old TV shows did, which had essentially no character development beyond what was needed for the particular episode. So I thought there's something to be done with that. And I had originally, when I thought about this, I thought it would be fun to do a reboot of Maverick using modern storytelling techniques. Well, when I finally got hold of somebody with the authority to answer this question, the answer was very short, and the answer was no. So at that point, I had done enough story development and started to do historical research, and I decided to just do it with my own characters. Sure, History is a continuum. It doesn't start and stop. As a result of that, you could comment on current events today from either end of the timeline. You could comment on it from the futuristic perspective or from the perspective of 150 years ago. So part, to, to me, part of the difference between science fiction and historical fiction is science fiction has to be plausible. Mm-hmm. I never had to do very much research writing a Star Trek novel I knew the universe i knew how the machinery worked i knew the characters i just had to make sure if there was a science bit in it that it was plausible but with historical fiction you have to be accurate right and i didn't want to write not that i don't love westerns but i didn't want to write solely a western story I really wanted to have that element of historical accuracy, which I think opens up the audience. And I think it just adds a lot of richness to the story. So doing research was really fun. Maybe I used 10% of what I actually learned. But I've always been interested in history anyway, so I don't mind learning about things that are actually interesting to me. So that's kind of how I turned that 180 from future to past.
1: Well, here you are. Galway's Gamble Two will be released in early July, mm-hmm. and this is the latest uh, writing work you've done. And let's go back to the very, very first. Okay. So, Howard, how the hell did you come <laughs> to get a Star Trek teleplay play produced at the age of nineteen? Like what? Well, okay. Let, let's let's start even earlier than that, when you were watching Star Trek in the late sixties. What struck you? What li- fired your phasers about it? What did you love about Star Trek?
3: I wasn't really a huge science fiction fan, but I was a huge fan of the actual space program. Um, I was born in 1954. So by the time I was six years old, the American space program was starting to get rolling. I, I saved clippings on the actual space shots. I got books about the space program. But when Star Trek came along, it hit me at a at an age, I was 12 when Star Trek began. And, And I have this theory that when you're 12, you're really starting to become who you're going to be. And the interests that you have when you're at that age are interests that stay with you for the rest of your life. Agreed. But we're also starting to interact with the adult world at that age and starting to understand it and trying to figure out our place in that adult world that in a relatively short few years, we're going to be part of. And so Star Trek just hit me at exactly the right moment, that optimism about the future. And I think when you're 12, you're also starting to get a sense of the larger world in which you're living and the larger world in which we were living in 1966 and 67 and 68 was a pretty turbulent place. And Star Trek, As all of us who are longtime fans or even more recent fans know, part of the appeal of Star Trek is that it said, we're going to get through all this crap. Um, We're not going to destroy ourselves. We're going to be able to get through this and build a future, and here's what the future might look like. And it was a future that portrayed the best of what humanity could be. I also really enjoyed a book that was published, I believe, in 1968, called The Making of Star Trek.
1: Oh yes, by Stephen E. Whitfield and right. Gene Roddenberry. That was the first book ever written about the making of a television show, and that was written while the show was still in production. That is a seminal book,
3: and I still think it's the, if it's not the best, it's one of the one of the top five best making of books that anybody ever wrote. Partly because at that point things were pretty innocent in the world, in a lot of ways, including licensing, and. Studios hadn't really gotten to the point where they were trying to market the bejesus out of every successful property that they were involved in producing. And so Whitfield had incredible access, not just to the people who were making the show and the actors who were starring in the show, but all of the memos and background stuff. And it's as if they said to him, here, here's everything we know about Star Trek, Feel free to use it in your book, and it worked. It, I read that book while I was still watching the original series, probably during the second season, and it made me want to write for television.
2: So the the series ends, the animated series starts. You are nineteen years old. How did you start writing this episode, and how did you get it to the team at the animated series?
3: Well, during high school, I was start, I was writing Star Trek short stories. Um, writing them out, you know, longhand on loose leaf paper with the three holes on the side, yeah. and I would pass them around to my friends. who We were all Star Trek fans at that period of time. We were the smart kids. We were the nerdy kids, and everybody loved Star Trek. I even handed in one of those short stories as a writing assignment for my English class in probably eleventh or twelfth grade. Don't remember which one, but it really got me into writing, and um, I'm going to confess to you that. In order to figure out how to write a screenplay, I stole a book from the public library. Um, I still have it here somewhere on a shelf.
2: I've already notified the library. They'll be coming after you with major fines (laughs) in a few minutes.
3: It was a different world. You couldn't buy stuff online. And I thought, I'm never going to find this book again. So I told the library that I lost it, and I paid them the $5. So I feel like I didn't exactly steal it. Okay. It was a really good book, and it really helped me figure out how to write a script. And when the animated series came on Saturday mornings in 1973, I watched them on my little black and white TV at school in my dorm room, and I was really impressed with the show. Mm -hmm. So it was, I think, in October of 73 that I decided I was going to take a run at this and see what, what did I have to lose. And I should preface this by saying... When you're 19, you're basically an idiot.
1: <laughs>
3: and you think the rules that apply to the rest of the world don't necessarily apply to you because somehow you're special. Mm-hmm. Now, this could this could have you wind up in the emergency room at a hospital, or it could, could lead you to the beginning of a writing career. Um, I skipped the emergency room and decided to jump right into the writing career. And so I wrote to Filmation. I didn't even have a person's name to write to. That's how stupid I was. And I sent them this letter in October of 73. And about two weeks later, I got an answer from Dorothy Fontana. Uh, Obviously, fans remember her as one of the best of all the Star Trek writers in all the Star Trek series. Mm -hmm. Her letter said basically... We haven't bought any freelance scripts. We've only bought scripts from writers we know who came in and pitched stories to us. And she didn't sound encouraging, but she was very polite. Um, I Some, sometimes that's encouraging.
2: That yeah.
3: Polite, no, you know. She didn't say, go away, kid, you bother me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: the fact that you got a response from Dorothy Fontana is is impressive. And that letter that you're referring to was actually written on October 25th, 1973. And, and I just, I just want to say you had several stories that you were thinking about uh, before you settled on the pirates of Orion. And um, what was it that inspired you to, to even go with the pirates of Orion? Like, was it something you saw in the original show? One of the episodes of the original
3: show? You're giving me too much credit. For conscious thought, um, I had—I just felt like it was the best of the stories that I had written, probably because it did actually pick up a thread from Journey to Babel episode with the Orions, where they didn't call them pirates, but they were clearly bad guys and they were doing nefarious things around the fringes of the Federation, and that was the first time I did something that I ended up doing in the various Star Trek novels I wrote and even more so in the comic books because I wrote so many stories for DC and Marvel and Wildstorm, uh, different publishers that had the comic book license over the years in the 90s when I was doing a lot of that work. But I love going back and picking up a thread that had been left dangling and seeing where that might lead. And the other part of it, I don't know if this was a conscious thing or not, but the Pirates of Orion had the benefit of really being an interpersonal story. So it, it had two things going for it. It picked up a thread about the Orions doing bad things in space. And it also continued what we really was one of the most appealing things about Star Trek is the relationship between Kirk, Spock and McCoy. And so it focused on that. And uh, so pro- I think it was that Christmas vacation when I went home, we had a few more letters back and forth um, between Dorothy Fontana, the agent that I had because he was a childhood friend of my father's and did this as a favor to my dad. Things happened. Considering that we mailed everything in those days. Yeah. Now that I look back at the timeline, things went back and forth really quickly. So. So my agent, despite the fact that he kept telling me, don't bother writing for shows produced in California. They have their own writers, and they're really not interested in outsiders, and you, are, and you haven't written anything yet. You have no credits, so they're not going to be interested. But there was that 19-year-old level of stupidity. Well, why can't it be me? So when he sent the script out to Filmation, he addressed it to Mr. D.C. Fontana. He didn't realize that Dorothy was... Uh, It was D.C. Fontana. and But that's why she used the initials. Writers had to do that. Uh, Women writers really had to do that. They weren't taken seriously. And so they often used their initials. But anyway, by the time the script got to filmation, Dorothy had left the show. She was not working on it in the second season. And they forwarded the envelope unopened to Dorothy's house. And she got it and she felt it and looked at it and said, there's a script in here for legal reasons. She wouldn't open the envelope. So she sent it back to my agent with a letter explaining why she couldn't do do anything with it. And my agent sent the script back to me and he said, if you read that the show is picked up for a season two, submit it yourself. Use my name as your agent and send it to Norm Prescott, who was one of the partners with Lou Scheimer, who ran Filmation Studios. Right. So that script had gone 6,000-mile round trip in just a matter of weeks. And not only did nobody read it, no one even opened the envelope. (laughs) And that was pretty frustrating. But I did fairly quickly... in in that late winter, early spring, February or March, hear that the show is being picked up for a second season. What I didn't know is that they were only buying, you guys check me on this, six or seven new episodes. I forget which it was. Six. Six.
1: So how many drafts did you go through before you got to the one that they filmed with?
3: It was mainly one draft. They had me rewrite the ending a few times. Um, The reason was... I had written it to be like a TV episode from the original series where special effects were limited, sets were limited, um, planet locations were limited. But in an animated show, you can do anything you want visually. So basically, Lou Scheimer's instructions to me were get them off the bridge. And that's where we came up with the scene at the end, the climactic scene where Kirk and the um, Orion captain uh, go at it mano a mano fist to fist right for a little fight on a very colorful asteroid so that was really i mean uh, most of the script i'd say 98 percent of the script was probably the same as the draft that i had sent them
2: and uh how did you feel on that saturday morning when you got to wake up and watch your episode of star trek
3: well it's pretty cool obviously um i only heard about when it was going to be on toward the end of that summer and so i contacted friends and college friends and said, Hey, it's going to be on on September 7th, which was the first weekend that I was back at school at the University of Connecticut. So we had like a mini convention in my dorm room. Uh, Those were the days when not everyone had a TV in their dorm room. And, but I had this little black and white TV. So I invited a bunch of friends and about 20 people showed up and we were hanging from the rafters and sitting on the bunk beds and, and everybody clapped when my name came on the screen at the beginning, so it was pretty cool.
2: That's really cool.
3: So,
1: so I'm I'm, I'm curious when when you were going through this process, uh, did you have any interaction or any correspondence at all with Gene Roddenberry and and did you happen to be lucky enough to maybe be a filmation maybe when either Shatner, Nimoy, or D. Kelly were recording their their their
3: voiceovers? I didn't have any interactions with with Roddenberry i was told by lou scheimer that gene had read the script and thought it was one of the better first draft scripts they'd seen i'm assuming he was referring to the uh the animated show the thing that gets me though is the timing for my script to be there at exactly the moment when they were buying those six scripts and the fact that i was a complete unknown is really luck yeah and obviously No false modesty. I obviously had to write a script that was professionally competent enough for them to consider it. And the fact that they produced it with hardly any changes um, from what I originally sent them, uh, you know, that's just it's a matter of being at the right place at the right time. But you do have to produce the work. I didn't go out there. I wasn't it never even occurred to me that I could have. One of the things I was told, a lot of people who've talked to me about it over the 40-odd, almost 50 years since the show was on the air, was why did they pronounce the planet Orion as Orion? And I never knew the answer until I started going to conventions myself, and I met and got to know some of the actors like George Takei and Walter Koenig. And one of them told me that the initial run of episodes for the first season they all most of the actors got together in the studio at filmation and they recorded their lines like a radio play but later on they weren't doing that anymore they would simply send the script and a tape recorder to wherever the actors were and they'd record their own lines so they didn't have anybody to play off of right and someone at the studio must have written a pronounce a pronunciation guide and decided that everyone's going to pronounce this word as Orion. Uh-huh. And so they did. Um, but because the actors weren't getting together at that point, even if I had thought of going to the studio to see them record, uh, it wasn't really being done that way yet at that point.
1: You mentioned that one of the things that appealed to you was the relationship dynamic between Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. And Howard and Steve, Steve knows this, you know, we've we've <laughs> talked about the this, you know, more than a hundred times now in the last two and a half years, <laughs> I, you know, when I, when I was growing up and, and, you know, I was six years old when I saw Star Trek for the first time, Howard, my first episode was Mirror Mirror. So that was what lit my fuse. And, you know, all this talk about positivity and, you know, sort of like tying into the space race, I, you know, I get all that and I support all that, all those theories. But for me, Star Trek was about Kirk, Spock and McCoy. And when I was doing my rewatch of Pirates of Orion, (laughs) is how we're going to call it for the sake of this podcast, I hadn't seen it many, many, many years, like every other episode of the animated series we've talked about. So I rediscovered it. And that was what hit me. That's what jumped out at me. That's what made me go. This feels like a vintage episode of the original series. Is this relationship between Kirk, Spock, McCoy? Spock is dying. You know, Kirk will risk everything, uh, do anything to save his friend. You know, made me feel a lot of uh, certainly a mock time. There's a lot of a mock time going on there, and the you know the the relationship between Kirk, uh, Spock and McCoy and McCoy, fessing that he really cares about him. Steve, what was it about your
2: rewatch of? the pirates of orion that that you liked like, what did you think um it's the same things as you for, first of all i think it's i think it's different from a lot of the stories we've gotten in the animated series for a while there's been a lot of we're getting smaller we're traveling to another dimension we're meeting plant creatures we're, and this was more kind of classic almost Horatio Hornblower sort of adventure like we've got a there's these pirates and we have to get to them and we have to deal with them and I think that was really fun and absolutely I think that the relation both with uh McCoy with D Kelly's performance and Shatner put in more emotion I think into his performance in this episode than I had seen from him throughout maybe the entire animated series
1: I I agree with you completely. I felt like Shatner's voiceover was much more inspired, certainly than it had been since maybe, you know, the after the first three or four episodes where they were all together. The Pirates of Orion is the first episode of season two of the animated series. It aired on September 7th, 1974, which makes it the 96th episode of Star Trek to air the production number was 22020 which made it the 20th episode of the animated series to go into production now here's the interesting discovery that i kind of made with season two of animated series versus season one the season two episodes were a little bit shorter than the season one episodes and by that i mean the running times for the season two animated episodes were 23 minutes and 30 seconds where The running times for the first season of the animated series were a little more than 24 minutes. So we lost 30 seconds of story in the second season, which I thought was a very interesting uh, uh, observation to pick up.
2: So, uh, Howard, something we've been doing since the beginning of the show is we talk about what was going on in the world when the episode aired. And what I've been doing a little behind the scenes is that if you search on Wikipedia and you say – September of 1973, it has a long list of all the important events, births and deaths, and things like that. And for some reason, by mid-1974, Wikipedia hasn't doing that anymore. And so <laughs> no. I didn't have access to my main source. And so I was I was prowling the internet to find the events of the week <laughs> that this Before this aired, which is September 1st, 1974 through September 7th, 1974. And I could not find a great website. So I have way less info. And so if anyone out there listening has a better source to find just sort of day by day important events, please send it to me. Because otherwise, this segment of the show is going to get worse and worse. But here's what I can tell you. (laughs) that On September 1st, the SR-71 Blackbird set the world record flying New York to London in 54 minutes and 56 seconds. The classic song, You're Having My Baby, was number one in the U.S. charts. And Chinatown is the number one movie at the box office when this aired in 1974. And that's it. That's all I got. Well, That's still pretty cool, especially about Chinatown. So we get into the Pirates of Orion. I mean, the Pirates of Orion.
1: Yeah, the Pirates of Orion. Let's do it. Are you ready, Howard, to? And by the way, Howard, did you have a chance to rewatch the episode?
3: I confess I didn't.
2: Well, that's okay. We're going to take you through it. (laughs) Hopefully the mellifluous tones of my voice and the beautiful descriptions will bring it all storming back to you. We start as every episode of the animated series starts with a captain's log and a star date.
1: A star date, which in this case kind of blows my theory out of the water. So what I've been doing with the first season of the animated series, Howard, is I've been looking at the star dates and I've been sort of like connecting the dots and placing them into the chronology of the star date order of the original series. And many of those star dates began with a five, which meant that those episodes, so those adventures of the first season of the animated series took place during uh, the fifth year of the enterprise on its five-year mission and the third season of the original series. But you started The Pirates of Orion with stardate date 6334.1 which means that this episode takes place after the last chronological episode of the original series, which is All Our Yesterdays. And so this takes place actually between All Our Yesterdays and Star Trek The Motion Picture.
2: <laughs> well, there you go. Um, and what we hear is that we've just gotten through some – outbreak of a disease that's gone through the ship but everything's going to be okay because we're going to head off to this dedication ceremony and kirk turns to spock and says
0: status mr spock all systems affirmative captain the enterprise is on course and on schedule it'll be nice to play diplomat for a change Spock." Eh, spock?
2: and mr spock winces and collapses
1: and that so so i would like to know howard what was your where did you find the name uh Choreocytosis, which is the outbreak that is uh, uh, under control, but has infected Spock now.
3: The disease came from a 1930s college biology book that my father had saved from when he was a science student at City College in New York. And I don't know why he saved it, but I took it off the shelf at the house, my parents' house, where I was still living, obviously. And I just flipped through it and I found two partial words, choreo and cytosis, and smushed them together. And it actually, technically, it made a certain amount of sense in terms of what the disease was supposed to do. And McCoy explains that later. But if you checked a science textbook, you would find that those two words put together or two partial words put together, prefix and suffix, whatever, actually does describe what the disease was. So
2: That's good sci-fi writing because that's you took something that was real adjacent and put it together in a way that makes scientific sense, even if it wasn't specifically, you know, real thing, as opposed to just making up words out of whole cloth. Um, And Kirk immediately calls emergency to sickbay, even though it looks like for one shot, McCoy is standing right next to him on the bridge. There
3: (laughs) There were a few visual bloopers because of the fact that Filmation reused so much artwork. And obviously, not everybody was. They were not always as conscious of continuity as uh, yeah. they might have been.
1: Well, you, uh, you know what the, the the thing with that, Howard, I always you know sort of gave that a pass because Star Trek was not the only series that Filmation was producing. It was a uh, like an assembly line of animated shows, and uh, you know Lou Scheimer and uh, Hal Sutherland and Norm Prescott. They they were just juggling a lot and i don't blame things for getting lost in the detail or the shuffle rather but in the end you know you have a a lot of producers certainly fontana and roddenberry in the first season you had so many writers from the original series writing for the animated series of course you had the voices of our cast of Shatner, Nimoy, the Forest Kelly, everybody except for Walter Koenig. So I, I, it was easy for me to give that a pass. But yes, I did notice
2: that, Steve. It's funny, I, Scott, I finally found a perfect explanation of how you and I see this differently, which is, I used to teach film school, and so I taught directors, and if my director came to me, if a student comes to me and says, listen, I know this is totally out of focus, or this doesn't make any sense, or the wrong set is in the frame, but I really had a difficult final in my Spanish class, and I just was really busy, I'd say, that is no excuse. You get the grade you get. (laughs) You It doesn't matter what else is going on in the world. You, you made that mistake. That mistake is in there. You get the grade you get. Um, but so anyway, what we find out is that basically, while this is a minor disease for humans, for Vulcans, whose blood is copper-based instead of iron-based, it is fatal. To which I go, hey, McCoy, maybe you should have thought about that before you said everything is cool and just had Spock walking around, apparently, around a disease that could kill him.
0: The infection enters the bloodstream and encases a cell so they can't carry oxygen. The result is suffocation? (sighs) Yes, Jim.
2: He's going to die in three days, and the only drug that can save him is four days travel away. So this is the problem that we're facing.
1: You you know what? One of the things that... That as I'm rewatching, you know, because listen, I mean, when I, I I rewatch Star Trek all the time, especially the original series in the next generation, Deep space nine, I just go back to my favorite episodes and rewatch them many times. But with the animated series, I, I, one of the things that we've certainly I've discovered, maybe, maybe a little more than Steve, it's the animated series is much, much, much stronger than I ever gave it credit for. Uh, and because so many things about the animated series just—it feels like Star Trek. It's just animated. It's a little shorter, but some of the things that you like here's your very first like produced teleplay, and and you're leaning into so many things that really make Star Trek Star Trek. So many things that were accessible and familiar. Certainly the the character dynamic between Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. The Federation has to represent. Uh, uh, have the enterprise represent them at a dedication ceremony uh, 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 around the, the Science Academy in Denim 5. And that sort of like representation for the enterprise to be someplace to sort of be like the shiny thing. you know, maybe think of a mock time and you know Kirk having to get Spock the Vulcan, you know, or, or he's gonna die. So you've got this race against time. You know, were these things that really struck out at you from the original series that made you go, OK, what makes the original series great? How can I put this into an animated episode that's half the time?
3: Yeah, I, I mean, I think that if you watch the show religiously and by that time, not only had you talked about rewatching shows, well, that's what we did in the late 60s and early 70s is we kept watching Star Trek reruns. And so it was really like a crash, well, like an extended um a doctorate in, in Star Trekology, just watching the episodes over and over. and And again, one of the things that you have when you're young is that your brain is pretty empty and there's lots of room to store stuff. <laughs> Whereas now that we're old geezers, you know, you can't put new stuff in your brain unless something old falls out one of your ears. But back then we were just absorbing this stuff and memorizing it. And not only were we memorizing the text, meaning the dialogue that we could recite verbatim, we were also absorbing the subtext. And Star Trek was so was such a sturdily created show um, with the character interaction between those three characters, especially that if you were a fan and you were trying to write stories about it, that was like in your bloodstream. It's why we cared enough to want to create Star Trek stories, really. If we didn't care about the characters, we wouldn't have cared about the show.
2: Well, you certainly got that. And one of the other things I think that you got that has always been a Star Trek thing that I like is that it takes the team to come up with the solution. Mm -hmm. That it isn't just that Kirk goes, we will do this. It's that Kirk goes that's too far away, how am I gonna get my ship there? And McCoy goes, well, I'm gonna use this uh, synthetic drug that's not as good as the real drug we have to get. That'll last them three days. And is there another ship? And then we find another ship and that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna rendezvous with another ship uh, and we can just make it in time. We end up in the briefing room with what I think is a really rough scene, which is Spock comes in and kinda out of it and they basically say,
0: One other thing. I've cut your duty time in half. Captain, that won't be necessary. I'm quite able. No argument, Spock. Doctor's orders.
2: Is Spock, again, kind of in a day's leaves, and we hear,
0: it'll hurt seeing him like that. I know. As much as it might seem at times that I can't stand that pointy-eared encyclopedia, I don't want to see that happen to it.
3: That was a line that they, they asked me to change. Um, McCoy's original line was... was a little harsher, something like as much as I can't stand that pointy-eared encyclopedia sometimes, and they'd softened it to as much as it seems like I can't stand them. Mm.
1: Wow. Okay. Okay. But actually that, you know, I, and I'm thinking just sort of, you know, chronologically, you know, sort of a, in terms of the Star Trek that we'd seen up to this point where, you know, you have episodes where they definitely bicker and and sometimes uh, they lay it on a little too thick, and sometimes that bickering comes to a head, like it did in the Tholium web, where it did certainly, and I think certainly the the last great episode of the series, which was all our yesterdays. But then you have moments like the Immunity Syndrome, where they're arguing about who's going to go into the shuttlecraft to kill the big space amoeba, um, and uh the you know the moment you know steve i know you love this from uh uh bread circuses from the jail cell uh but this moment coming after the empath which is an episode that has divided a lot of fans uh some people like it some fans don't like it but of course steve knows that i love it but after that sacrifice the way they all were willing to sacrifice themselves for the other person in the empath and then you have mccoy saying you know i i really care about this guy i think it like gives this
2: episode more emotional heft when you know the history of these characters. And then we end up at a new ship, which is this freighter, the Huron, which I got to assume, Scott, this is a, another Bob Klein design.
1: Absolutely it is, yes. The the uh, the Huron and, of course, the uh, Orions, their designs are very much uh, Bob Klein all the way.
2: Bob Klein, the uh, storyboard artist for the animated series. And the captain and... Helmsman on the bridge seem to have very familiar voices again. You
1: guessed it. The Orion captain is voiced by James Dewin. The helmsman is uh, is voiced by Nigel Barrett. The navigator by George Takei. And I think the captain, uh, according to uh, Aaron Harvey's uh, uh, book, The Official Guide to the Animated Series, might have been voiced by Norm Prescott, one of the producers of the
2: animated series. Hmm. Um, and what we hear is, yes, they're heading to rendezvous with the Enterprise. But there's a a ship ahead and they can't figure out if it's the Enterprise. Back on the Enterprise bridge, we have this moment, which I have a comment on, which is Time to
0: rendezvous, Mr. Erics.
2: One hour, 43 minutes, sir. I
0: hate to ask, but hi, Captain, we'll squeeze a wee bit more speed out of it.
2: And I kind of go like, shouldn't there be just an assumption at a certain point that like, no, we're trying to go as fast as we possibly can go? Like, why do we always have to like, yeah, maybe I get a little bit more. Well, why weren't you already doing that?
3: It was a passive-aggressive relationship between yes. Scotty, exactly, you know, or I, Shatner and Jimmy.
1: Howard, I, I'm curious. Like, as you were watching the original series when it was on, you know, you're you're a member of the OG uh, uh, Star Trek uh, fan base there, but especially with the with the you know syndication and Five Nights a Week, which is how I got into it. What was like the two or three favorite episodes? of your uh, uh, back then and maybe even now?
3: Probably the ones you would most assume. um, Trouble with Tribbles, City on the Edge of Forever. I especially liked The Ultimate Computer, which is probably more timely now with all of the AI stuff going. I was just an article I read in the paper about people who are writers are losing their jobs to the chatbots And because companies don't really care about quality, they care about saving money. And if the chatbot is cheaper than the writer who does good work for you every day, year in and year out, then the writer's out and the chatbot is in. So the ultimate computer is more timely now than it was when it was written. But that's good science fiction um, in that it, it projected out 50, 60 years. And here we are facing that kind of conflict.
1: I agree with that. Uh you know, that that's an episode that definitely has aged well in that respect by being still timely. And you know, you're, you any time I watch a, a Star Trek episode that deals with a disease, uh whether it's naked time or this or especially Miri <laughs> after what we went through uh, starting mm-hmm. in 2020, um that 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 certainly has given those episodes even even deeper relevancy dealing with uh, uh you know, a pandemic or you know, an outbreak, whatever.
3: Yeah, you go. You all are going to make fun of me for saying this, but there are things I really liked about, oh, crap, I'm forgetting the name of the episode, The Yangs and the Combs. Oh, the Omega Glory. Omega Glory. The Omega Glory. I learned to recite from memory the preamble to the Constitution from that episode. <laughs>
1: So did I. <laughs> in fact, Howard, I told the story when we were recording our, our conversation for the Omega Gory. I'll keep it short, but I stood in front of my fifth grade class because my Teacher said, does anybody know the preamble to the Constitution? And I, no one raised their hand. I raised my hand. I went up in front of the class. I was in fifth grade. Not only did I recite that preamble, Howard, but I did it with that inflection. We, the people, I did it just like Captain Kirk.
2: You have to. <laughs> no, you see, I have to sing it because I learned it from Schoolhouse Rock. So. <laughs> um So, and then we just have another sad moment with spot kind of out of it. And he heads down to sick bay and we had, we go back to the Huron ship and this is something we've seen throughout the series that I've commented on this episode might be, have the most of it, which is really, really long, slow establishing shots that clear. And I know we it's weird to me that we lost 30 seconds (laughs) and we're still seem short because there's just a certain rhythm to an establishing shot. Mm -hmm. And like, it's just like, okay, we're looking at the ship. Oh, we're still looking at the ship. Yeah, That's still, yeah, still still there. And there's, I think, there. four or five of them in this episode. So they must have been a full minute at least short, you know, for adding all these things.
3: And I swear, um, God, I swear to God, I didn't put that in the script. I'm looking at the script now, and it says, shot 20, exterior space, Huron. That's all it said.
1: Yeah. <laughs> How am I curious, when you were watching the episode for the first time, you know, I know it was, you know, look, this year marks the 50th anniversary of the animated series, but do you recall any feelings about a scene that you were watching that came out even better than what you envisioned when you wrote it?
3: I don't think I was watching it that analytically. I can't think of anything. I was just taking it all in. That still must've been very cool. Yeah. Yeah. I was so happy that they bought the script and paid me for it that I was just glad to see it on TV. You know, it was a, it was a dream of mine to be a TV writer and it happened so quick and at such a young age. I really don't think that I was processing it that way. Mm -hmm. It was just, Oh, okay. I've achieved my dream at the age of 19. What do I do next? Yeah, right, right,
2: right. So the the first feature I wrote that got made, I was... Uh, probably twenty seven or twenty eight, so maybe that's why. But when I first saw the first cut, I went, "This is wrong. This is not where the camera should be here." They didn't do the line. I was, I was just angry through the entire thing because they didn't do do what I thought should have been done with that movie. um But maybe that just says more about my personality than it does about anything else.
3: Well, that was um, your big opportunity to learn the lesson that once the writer hands the script, then you're out, man.
2: You're out. Yeah. And so back on the Huron ship. We see that the ship coming towards them is not the Enterprise, it is the Orion pirate ship. I love this design. I think it's really cool.
1: Yes, that uh, it looks it looks like a great design again. Something else from uh, Bob Klein. Bob Klein is like really an unsung hero from the uh, the animated
2: series. We're in Sickbay with McCoy and Spock and Howard, she did this this seems my maybe my favorite between the two of them.
0: "This won't hurt a bit, Spock." An unnecessary assurance, Doctor. In addition to being untrue. That's the last time I waste my bedside manner on a Vulcan.
2: I, I think that's a nice little bit. Yep. And then what I like even better is we look up at the monitors. Well,
0: that's not too bad. Back to work, Mr. Spock. Thank you, doctor.
2: And after Spock leaves, Christine says.
0: The drug isn't working anymore. I know, Christine, I know.
2: Not only do I think that's great, but... It also shows that that wasn't the last time you used your bedside manner on Spock. Mm -hmm. You just used it right there because you lied to him about the results of this test to not discourage him. Really good point. Really good point. That brings us to the end of Act 1. We're back in Act 2. The pirate ship is closing fast on the Huron. They're trying to hail it. It's no good. We try some evasive maneuvers. Scott, I think at our last episode, I said that I had become numb to the repetitive music. Mm-hmm. Not true. <laughs> <It's> really <laughs> bugging me again. It's really bugged me in this scene. Um, and we get a message from the Orion saying, Prepare to surrender your cargo or be destroyed. One of
1: the things that I, we've always talked about on Enterprise Incidents, Howard, is how they increase the stakes. So you, you have Spock dying. Uh, you know, the, It's a race against time. And now the uh, uh, the the, uh, the cure is on the Huron, but the Huron is being attacked. And you, then you throw in the fact that the Huron also has very precious cargo and dilithium, which, of course, we all know is extremely uh, valuable in the twenty uh, third century and beyond. So uh, I'm just curious, like, what were the challenges to uh, to to get all all these? signature things of Star Trek, including the relationship dynamic in, in a way that fit into basically, I would say, maybe 21 minute story once you take out the credits.
3: You're giving me too much credit for conscious thought. <laughs> At that point, I know I knew so little about writing. You know, I thought I knew what I needed to know. I thought I knew plenty, but um, it was just really seat of the pants writing. Right. And, and it was really influenced by what I had absorbed from watching three seasons of Star Trek over and over and over again. So I had a sense of the rhythm of the show. When I look at the script, and obviously, if I wrote it today, it would be a different script. It would be better. It would be tighter. It would make more sense in certain areas than it does. It would be less arbitrary about assigning certain things to happen in the story in just a certain way. But it was almost a formula. And the formula is because I watched so many Star Trek episodes so many times that it gave me the structure of what the story was supposed to be before I knew anything about story structure.
2: Scott's heard me say this before, but I think I actually think Star Trek is among the top influences on how I learned how to write because the original series, the structure is so tight and so clear. In, in the good episodes, it's just, I, I think it was a huge, huge formative thing for me. Um, we're back on the bridge of the enterprise where we received an emergency beacon uh, from the Huron. We get closer to it. And just as we're started to do scans on that, Spock goes out. And this is just what Scott said. You're ratcheting up the tension on multiple fronts here. And we find out in sickbay that that synthetic drug is useless. Do what you can, Bones. Blasted Falcon.
0: Why couldn't you have red blood like any normal human?
2: <laughs> <laughs> There's another long shot. And then we're going to beam over to the Huron. And what we find out is all the dilithium crystals and the drugs, they're all gone. One thing that I thought was interesting
1: in, in watching, watching this episode, Howard, is, you know, there were certain animated episodes where some of the cast members weren't even in it, uh, you know, in, in the uh, slaver weapon. You only see Spock and Uhura and Sulu. You don't even see Captain Kirk or the Enterprise. They're not even mentioned. But your episode, you're using everybody. Everyone has a, not only in it, but they have crucial roles. Even who who is a character that was unique to the animated series. So I, forgive me for giving you too much credit here, <laughs> but Howard, that, that was a thing that that a lot of original series episodes lacked, that animated series episodes made up for, was really like spreading the love between all of the characters and the actors.
3: I would love to say I did that intentionally. I can't say that I did, but it may have been in the back of my head that we didn't really see the other characters very very well developed, and, and they didn't often have anything other than a, a strict small function, like we were saying, hailing frequencies open, Captain. But I know that when I started writing the novels and the comic books, it was a very conscious thing to write stories that, as they were doing in the movies, as the movies progressed, it was sort of a hallmark, especially the ones where Leonard was, if not directing, he was nominally in charge or co-in charge, Um, but giving everybody something interesting to do. And it showed not only what the characters were capable of, but it also gave the actors a chance to actually do something. But I was very conscious of that in writing the novels and the comics where you have more room and space to develop characters and story. And I always made sure that I was utilizing everybody and giving them much more to do.
2: Um, that's great. By the way, the I remember those Star Trek comics, the DC ones that you did. And uh, that's right when I was trying to break into comic books as a writer, and so I think I think I submitted story proposals. I don't remember who your who the editor was at that time. Did you? Uh, really? yeah, yeah, I because that's when I was sending the the first one I sold was to Kevin Dooley on Green Lantern Court Quarterly. Um, But I was sending into I was writing proposals for all sorts of comics at DC and Marvel. For you, so yeah, wow. Well, I have a pretty pretty I would say about seven stages below unremarkable comic book careers. (laughs) like, I I went off to film school pretty soon as I wasn't really doing very well as a comic book writer. Um, Anyway, uh, what we find out is that if we don't get the drugs, Spock has 20 hours to live. And we also get a trail of radioactive waste that we can follow. Back in sick bay, we have a really nice scene with Bones and Kirk.
0: What's the use of being a doctor anyway? We're only as good as our drugs and technology make us underneath all the tricks. I might as well be practicing in the middle ages.
1: It's great writing, Howard. It's okay.
2: (laughs) It's funny. I actually, I, I, I read that and I think, I think it's good writing too. I also think, well, that's true of all doctors at all times. If without, without the science and technology that you have at your fingertips, we're all back in the middle ages, you know, that's just the way it works.
3: And, and that um, was that was a riff off stuff McCoy had said, you know, totally during the, uh, the run of the original series. So familiarity with the show helped me find spots to do things like that, which while they weren't completely original, they were within the continuity of what we had come to expect.
2: We head into an asteroid belt. Uh, I think the asteroids look really cool. I think they did a good there's something very three dimensional about them that looks really nice. And we hit something and one of the asteroids explodes because they are highly unstable composition. And Scotty says,
0: Captain, if the power of those rocks could be harnessed, they'd make a fantastic source of energy.
2: Also make quite a weapon. Foreshadowing. And that is the end of Act 2.
1: So those asteroids may be made up of the same chemical compound that makes up the rocks on Gamma Trianguli 6, Mm. which is the uh, planet of Val. Where if you step on the wrong rock, you know, you uh, you explode.
2: (laughs) We come back in act three and immediately they get hit by a phaser, which I found I found confusing. I was like, I didn't quite understand how we got into this moment. There's not like a setup before it. But we realize that the pirate ship is there and that their phasers are pretty weak and their deflectors can handle it uh, and they hail them. I think they're, the costumes of the Orion crew—they totally look like superhero costumes to me.
1: Yeah, they do. It's something out of like a you know an early '70s Marvel comics.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's it's kind of it's kind of a Jack Kirby light with a with a you know green '70s color. It's kind of odd. Now you um, guys
3: know more about this than I do. Do you have any idea who was involved in designing character designs?
1: Yes, that was uh, that was Bob, uh, Bob Klein was the uh, storyboard oh, artist too. for for oh. the uh, uh animated series and mm-hmm. he you know he designed like things like the the Orion ship uh, you know uh the uh, the Huron uh he was very creatively involved and you know we interviewed Bob Klein for our deep dive of the Time Trap and that was a a really incredible conversation you know uh to be able to talk to you know someone who worked on the
2: animation for mm-hmm. the animated wow.
1: series So, uh, so yeah, all the stuff was, uh,
2: him really. Well, I'm sure there were a lot of other artists I'm sure working on it and I don't know, but, but it sounds like a, it sounds like Howard, Bob wasn't that much older than you when he got this gig. This is his first big real professional gig. And it seems like from our interview with him, he became sort of the utility knife. You know, he was a Jack of all trades and they would go, Oh, do some ship designs. Oh, do some character designs. Oh, do some storyboards, do some backgrounds. And he did, he jumped around and did a lot of it. That must have been
3: um, a lot of fun for him.
2: He loved it. He, he's, he's a great, it, we had a great time talking to him.
3: Enterprise, we
0: demand that you cease your pursuit immediately. I must protest as a representative of a neutral planet. This is Captain Kirk. For a neutral, you were pretty quick to fire your phasers.
2: And what we hear is that the neutrality of the Orions has been uh, brought into question because of various incidents in the past including they mentioned the, the uh, Babel conference. Yes.
1: Yeah. You, you, that must've been an episode that really stuck out for you. Journey to Babel.
2: It did.
3: That was a Dorothy Fontana episode, wasn't it? Yep. Sure was.
2: (laughs) I was watching this and I was thinking about that and I really wish these were Andorians and not Orions. Well, because, because of Journey to Babel.
1: Because, uh, well, okay, sure. The, The Orion that we saw in Journey to Babel was
2: dressed like an Andorian. Oh, that's what you're right. Oh, I'm totally wrong. Uh You're totally right. (laughs) Yes. Oh, that makes so much more sense. Duh, because it's a fake Andorian. Right. Oh, Uh I I feel like I've lost Star Trek cred. Oh, it's too bad. (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) Did you have a brain glitch there? Apparently, apparently. Uh, but it was a funny enough one that I can't edit it out. <laughs> I gotta
1: leave it in there.
2: Sorry. No, no, I have to leave it in. Well, it, um, as a character
3: development thing, it, it humanizes you. Good. <laughs> yes,
2: you're absolutely right. You're right.
0: Yesterday, a Federation freighter was attacked in this quadrant. Its cargo hijacked. As the first alien ship encountered, we require you to submit to search
1: as per Babel Resolution A12. Reply.
2: And I'm like man Shatner's pretty intense mm-hmm. this it moment you
1: know, it's also even though he was doing his his dialogue on his own you know it, it it was a new season and you know he's probably like oh I haven't done this in a while so you get I feel like he was like energized and you know reinvigorated and refreshed because you know like I said at the top of the conversation I think that Shatner's work in this episode uh com- compared to just how stiff he kind of sounded in some of the later first season episodes was
2: was inspired he did a great job. We scan the ship, and while the drugs are too small to find, we do realize they have a hold full of dilithium crystals. So I'm pretty sure we got the right guys.
3: Yes. Um, Uh
2: And then Kirk offers them this deal.
0: You keep the dilithium shipment. No mention of the whole incident to Starfleet or in my log, plus an additional galactic standard weight container of dilithium
2: as payment for the drug. How how do you feel, Scott, about Kirk making this offer?
1: I think... uh it is uh maybe a lapse in judgment in some ways but very much in character for him considering you know he's been down this road before about doing whatever he needs to do to save spock and he was ready to put his career in the line to divert to vulcan to get him uh in, there in time for the uh uh the far. and you know he's he's doesn't you know he's he's thinking of of spock more than he's thinking uh, maybe rationally about giving the Orions more dilithium than they even have at this point.
3: Or he could have been lying.
2: Oh, I never well, thought that's, that. Uh, so that's interesting. You said that Howard, because the thing I've been thinking about and it's come up on the show before is more and more. I think you're not really under a moral obligation to deal truthfully with criminals who are threatening your life. You know, like, I I can I can lie in a deal like that if you've stolen stuff and you're want, people are gonna die because of it and you fired on me. Why do I have to be honest with you? He's doing what he has to do. And they go off to consider their offer and then they talk again about having a face-to-face exchange. Now, Howard, have they come up with the plan to betray the enterprise at this point? Or are they offering this at this moment thinking they're really gonna do it?
3: Beats the hell out of me. We'll have to watch the rest of the episode. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Um in the briefing room they start talking about whether or not this is a trap and it, again you you're right Scott it's right out of a mock time because Kirk says it could be a trap
0: but it's the only way to get the drug and Spock will die if we don't you've already made up your mind haven't you Jim yes but not without precautions
2: and we come up with a plan where he's going to just as a safety precaution he's going to keep the communicator open they'll keep a transporter lock on him
0: and if anything goes wrong Scotty, I'm
2: trusting you. What is he saying there, do you think?
1: Uh, if anything goes wrong, I'm try- I've always thought I'm trusting you to you know, beat me up in a timely fashion, but I think maybe you're thinking of something different.
2: Well, theres I can't remember what, maybe, Scott, you'll remember what episode it is, but there's some episode where Kirk is beaming down and says something to Scotty like, you'll know what to do if I die, basically.
1: I, I thought that was Enemy Within when, when uh, Kirk says to Spock behind the transporter. and I mean, he's holding the other Kirk. If this doesn't work, you know, we yes. had that discussion.
2: Yeah. Like, I think I, that's what it is.
1: Yeah. I, I thought like, you know, it, you know, if this doesn't work, you know, you'll take command, but you were the one who said, if this doesn't work, you know, make sure you, uh, uh, put me out of my misery.
2: Yeah. I think I, this moment feels like it has a little bit of a, of an unspoken communication with Scotty. That's how I felt about it.
1: We can't
0: take Kirk's word that he won't report this incident to Starfleet. The only way to avoid that is to destroy the Enterprise, and the only way to do that is to destroy ourselves
2: too, which as you have reminded me, they have a tradition of this from Journey to Babel of of suicide missions. And we hear that, you know, the asteroids are explosive and maybe we can if the Enterprise is close, we're going to detonate a bomb on the asteroid during the exchange and that's going to destroy our ship and destroy the Enterprise.
1: So one of the things Howard that we we talked about a few times during the first season of the animated series is that, yeah, sure, Star Trek aired on Saturday mornings and, and and you know was definitely maybe gonna be seen by a much, much younger audience by kids. But the mantra that that story editor like Dorothy Fontana, that Roddenberry, even David Gerald. Who was very prominently involved with the first season of the animated series told the writers, just write for Star Trek. Don't talk down to your audience. Was there any concern on your part when you were writing, knowing that you were writing for what was a Saturday morning animated series, to like, wow, we're talking about like self destructing and suicide? Like, you know, these are things that. Uh, maybe a parent, like uh, certainly in the early 70s, maybe not now because people are more tolerant and stuff like that, where you went like, hey, that's a little too much. Tone, th- tone down the violence because kids are watching.
3: Well, actually, that is something. I remember Lou Scheimer saying to me, basically, the NBC doesn't want all those people dying on Saturday morning television because <laughs> originally I think the ship was going to self-destruct. Wow. And so we had to, I had to change that. I had to just figure out a different way to do it where, and that's where we came up with the, um, they beam the captain Kirk and the Orion captain to the enterprise. And you've got the, the literal poison pill and they stopped that. So at that point, that's how we, we got out of that little fix. Interesting. I don't, I don't think it weakened the script. It was more blunt. The original version at this point. Mm -hmm. But if that was the requirement, and that was a little bit of an education for me as a writer, you know, that I can't do everything the way I want to do it. There are other people who have the power to tell me, you got to change that. And I don't get to argue with it. My job as the writer is to figure out a way around the problem and fix it so that they're happy and I'm happy. And that was an early lesson, which was a very useful lesson because writers run into that all the time. You're not the power in the, uh, in the equation. So if somebody else has more power than you do, you have to give them what they want or they're never going to hire you again. Yep. But at the same
1: time, you know, by making that change, Howard, what you did was you tapped into one of the enduring elements of Star Trek and certainly of Captain Kirk is his show of compassion you know, that in the end he said, yeah, don't don't kill yourself, okay? Uh, I, I think that makes the episode stronger.
3: There was, you guys must have seen it, I don't, was it called The Center Seat? It was that like eight-part series? Yeah, I saw it. Gates McFadden narrated and when I, when they did the section on the animated series, I was stunned. No one had ever contacted me, so I didn't know what they were doing and I hadn't even heard of this series till it was on. And when they we're talking about the animated series. They focused on mine, which I was really kind of surprised, flattered. Um, they gave it an element of seriousness that I don't know that I had in mind when I wrote it. Um, but it was it's always, even listening to you guys, it's always interesting to me to hear how what other people think of what I wrote and how other people interpret it. Because looking back 50 years, again, 19-year-old brain 50 years ago, I don't know that I put that much conscious thought into any of this stuff, <laughs> but I like to hear that people got something I maybe didn't even know was there. But when they talked on the uh, Center Seat series about the fact that this dealt with suicide mission and other serious elements, and they particularly pointed this out as a way of indicating. That, as you guys had said earlier, that the animated series didn't write down to its audience. If anything, it wrote, it talked up right, and dealt with serious issues that the original series had done, but in a Saturday morning format.
2: So uh, both captains beam down and just as Kirk is seeing that, yes, he does have the drug, the Orion captain informs him.
0: I have an explosive device in my backpack that will start a molecular chain reaction and detonate this asteroid. Your ship will be destroyed.
2: I love, by the way, that Kirk attacks the Orion captain. And there's a great pose as they're fighting with each other that I actually think looks really cool. And we managed to beam them both up before the Orion captain can blow up the asteroid. And we end up on the bridge where again, just like Journey to Babel, he's about to try to commit suicide, but we managed to stop him in time.
0: I'm sure your ship is ready to self-destruct, Captain. But if it does, your crew will die for nothing.
2: Which basically means there's no way that the Federation doesn't find out about what the Orions are doing. And so there is no point in all of you killing yourselves.
1: Mm-hmm. And I like how, you know, if the Orion ship is destroyed, the Captain will still survive and stand trial, and the you know the Orion's game of neutrality and piracy will will still be blown. I mean, like, look I, again. I'm giving you a lot of credit here, Howard. You really <laughs> thought this through.
2: <laughs> We're back on course to Denim Five. Um, and Kirk walks in on Spock and McCoy arguing Spock that green blood of yours may have saved
0: you before, but this time it almost did you in. You can't deny it
2: And I, and I just go like it's such a it's d- such a dumb argument on McCoy's part because it's like Spock has survived all sorts of stuff. McCoy never could have survived.
0: <laughs> I still prefer my physiological structure to yours Yes, gentlemen, things are back to normal. Mm. <sighs> He's as stubborn as ever.
2: And then bursts into this almost maniacal, <laughs> battle, I think, the way it's animated. And that's the end of the episode. Howard, you ended the episode with a coonism,
1: a Gene Coon moment of humor uh, after all the seriousness.
3: Well, you know, if you're going to copy, copy from the best.
1: Absolutely. Was Gene Coon your favorite writer of the original
3: series? I think he was the best. He might be the best writer of Star Trek, of all of ever. Star Trek, in my opinion. I agree. I agree with um, that. He wrote so many great episodes, and we don't even know how many episodes he rewrote that wouldn't have been as good without him. Dorothy has to be up there, too. Again, she didn't write as many episodes as Gene as Kuhn did, I don't think. But, again, we don't know what she did behind the scenes where it, she didn't get credit for it. If in case you're curious, I found a couple of carbons of letters that I wrote to Lou Scheimer... Yeah. On April 24th, uh, I decided to send you both endings that we discussed, the Orion ship self-destructing and the clean ending with the simple surrender. So neither of those were the final ending. Mm. We ended up blending those two, obviously. Then three days later, April 27th, I sent Lou another note. Enclosed are the additional pages we discussed. The Orion captain and his science offer discussing the situation – telling us why he's going to beam down instead of simply self-destructing. We get two reasons, a practical reason and a human reason, Orion reason, if you will. Um, One, they can't detonate the asteroid from space. And two, the Orion wants to see Kirk sweat a little. So, yeah, we went through a three-phase thing. And and that, that was the last of it at the end of April. It's really amazing to me that I finished working on this at the end of April, and it was on TV, you know, five months later. Wow. That was pretty quick turnaround for them. Were there
1: other episodes of the animated series that you that stood out to you? Because I know you liked it, obviously.
3: Yeah. I think everybody pretty much agrees that um, Yesteryear was the best yeah. episode. That would have been amazing to see that. You know what I've never known, and you you guys may know this, I, I haven't been able to find anything in any interview that Dorothy ever did, um, but you may know the answer to this. I always wondered, was this a story she had thought about doing in the original series but never got a chance to, or was this something that she came up with for the animated show? From what I have had
1: read, and and I've read a lot,
3: <laughs> this was written specifically
1: for the animated series. And it is the only episode of the animated series that Dorothy Fontana actually got a credit on, even mm-hmm. though she she definitely was very collaborative with the other writers when it came to reaching out to some of the original series veteran writers to have them write for the animated series. Um, and, and that's absolutely one of the great things that gave the animated series so much credibility, to stand alongside the original series. But one thing that, um, one thing I can tell you, Howard, is that Gene Kuhn, who I agree with you, is definitely one of the best writers that Star Trek ever had. I mean, the, the episodes that he got credit on writing, whether it was Arena or Errand of Mercy or Devil in the Dark or Metamorphosis, uh, uh you know, all episodes that, that absolutely are timeless. Dorothy Fontana asked Gene Kuhn to write an episode for the animated series. And he, he said no, because the pay wasn't worth it. <laughs> so that's really too bad because yeah. you know 73, 74, you know, Gene Kuhn, you know, didn't really, I think he passed away in 74, 75. So, uh, that would have been great to have a final yeah. know, from him for Star Trek. It's too bad, but uh, yeah, it is too bad. But what is your your opinion of just the legacy of the animated series? You know, people kind of overlook it; it's 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 underappreciated. But I I find that that it is a crime by how overlooked it is because yeah, certainly the animation is not great, and they're definitely uh, like Steve pointed out with the music they used over and over and over again. But there's so much to the animated series that makes it absolutely worthy of the name of Star Trek. What's your take on that?
3: I agree with that. I mean, it's it didn't bother me that it was overlooked because part of it was that it wasn't rerun as much as the original series was. So it kind of disappeared for a long time until um, home video brought out first the videotapes and then later on, of course, the DVD set. Um, I was pleasantly surprised within the last five or six years when writers started work, maybe they'd run out of other things to write about Star Trek, but that was when people contacted me, having had the virtue of being one of the people who was still alive, who had worked on the animated series. So by a process of elimination, more people were contacting me and asking me if they could interview me about the animated series for books that they were working on. And um, at least two books have come out that that focus on the animated series and that i think was was fun i appreciated not personally but i appreciated as a star trek fan that the animated series was getting some attention and respect
1: i've just you know how did your uh discussing the episode with us make you maybe see it a little differently because you looked like you were reading your script as you went along any any new thoughts about it
3: Not really. I mean, I always look back at it as I wish I could write it as the writer that I became, not as the writer I was. But the perspective of all of these years, especially when people started interviewing me for the books about the animated series and asking me questions about stuff that I literally had no recollection of. I'm glad I saved all this paperwork stuff. But what I always look back at is, again, just the serendipity of my being in the right place at the right time and the the silliness of the script going back and forth with nobody reading it. And I just found another letter. This was from my agent dated February 19th, 74 where my agent says I'm returning this, the script to you with a letter received from Mr. Darcy, DC Fontana. And then this is dated February 19th and they bought the script from me in early April. This was a very tiny window of opportunity. What I don't know is, as of February nineteenth, how many scripts had they already bought for the second season? I'll never know the answer to this. I don't know that anybody has that information, and if if they ever did, they're they're gone now. Um, right. But that was a really tiny, lucky window of opportunity for me. Had I not sold this script, I don't know if I would have been a writer. Wow. So I think about. Just, again, having been in the right place at the right time, having had the stupidity to ignore the rules and go, well, why can't I sell them a script? Um, So, you know, when when I talk to younger writers at conventions, which I've done many, many times over the last 40 odd years since I first appeared at a convention as a guest in 1976, so it's almost 50 years... um, but i always tell people that story and i go you know we can tell you what the what the accepted common wisdom is but maybe you'll be the one who like i did you break the rule and, and you get in somewhere where people said oh you can't do that uh-huh. what about you steve what was
1: your take uh, re, you know after the conversation and you know just in a, in the perspective of of our of our deep dives of the animated series
2: I like it even more. And particularly, I like it more because I was wrong and forgot about the fact that the Andorian was fake. That makes the episode much, much better. And so, so I, it's one of the rare times where I'm glad to be wrong. No, I, I really enjoyed it. How about you, Scott? I, I really enjoyed it, too. Uh, yeah,
1: I, I, like I mentioned, you know, rewatching these after so many years where I've certainly forgot more than i remembered about them i feel like i'm rewatching them for the first time going like oh this is totally star trek this is totally star trek i mean like you know again just that that try that that trio the the holy trio of kirk spock and mccoy i mean you nailed it with this with the screenplay uh teleplay howard and and i think that uh like so many other episodes of the animated series we have covered this is definitely one of the very very best and uh I am so, so very grateful, Howard, to have you join us here on Enterprise Incidents uh, for this amazing conversation. Um, Howard, where can people find you on social media?
3: Um, I'm on Facebook under my name, so people can just search for Howard Weinstein. And my website is howardweinsteinbooks.com. The website has been neglected, but now that I'm finished with the new Galloway's Gamble book, I have to update the website. And I don't do a lot of conventions. Um, I do a couple of Baltimore conventions each year. Uh, Shore Leave is the next one coming up this summer, which is a great fan run convention with lots of guests, lots of writers, lots of panels, lots of workshops. Uh, But it's always fun. Even after all these years, it's still fun talking Star Trek with with guys like you and with people at conventions. So I appreciate your having invited me to join you.
1: Well, it was our pleasure and our honor. And Howard Weinstein's latest book, Galloway's Gamble 2, Lucifer and the Great Baltimore Brawl, is out in early July. So please pick it up. Make sure you pick up, uh, you know, check out Howard's website, Howard Weinstein Books, to see where you can get so many of his books. And there are, the links are right there. So you can click right onto Amazon and buy them at the, You know, snap of your finger. Steve, uh, here we go. We have begun season two, very short season of the animated
2: series. And we can't wait to hear your thoughts on the beginning of season two and on the Pirates of Orion. So you can visit us on our Facebook page. Just do a search for Enterprise Incidents. It's Enter Incidents on Twitter, Enterprise Incidents on Instagram. Of course, you should subscribe to the show at every single place you can think of subscribing it. Why wouldn't you want to listen to it on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify and on YouTube? We'd love to get your comments on YouTube reviews on apple Podcasts make a huge difference if you want to support the show you can do it just by clicking on the link in the show notes where you can put support the show for as little as 99 cents a month on spotify for podcasters and if you want to reach me you could do it at sr morris on twitter sr morris on one on instagram we got the cinephiles for it was, was my movie podcast and since i mentioned it on the show if you really want to see it That first movie that I wrote is called Stonebrook. It stars Seth Green and it is a thriller con artist movie uh, and maybe it's available for streaming somewhere I <laughs> honestly have no idea it's a pretty good movie it's not great but I'm still proud of it so you could check that out Scott how would people find you you can find
1: me on Twitter and Instagram at movie mance and please be sure to share Enterprise Incidents on your social media platforms so people who have not yet discovered Enterprise Incidents can find out about our show now that we have covered all 80 episodes of the original series and are deep in into- into our uh, deep dive of the animated series we have just five more episodes left to go and then we would be finished with the animated series please join us on the next voyage of enterprise incidents in which we will be doing our deep dive of Bem. that is next time on enterprise incidents until then keep going boldly